is our sermon text for this morning. Page 1622. It's Mother's Day, so I would be remiss if I didn't take just a moment to thank all of our mothers here. We would be, of course, lost without you, and uh, we love you very much. We love how all of you mothers amongst us remind us of the love of our Savior and the love of our God. So I hope that you have a good day and uh, a special day today. Sometimes it can get a little bit, I know at least in our home, it's, you know, a little bit dicey because you want to give mom a nice day, but mom's the one who knows how to do all of the nice things around the house. So one of those days you don't really know how it's going to go. But happy Mother's Day. Luke 14. Let's begin in verse 12. Uh, We'll be considering mainly verses 15 to 24, but uh, 12 through 14 really connect strongly to, to what we're thinking about today. So this is God's word. This is given to us, his people for our good. Let's attend to its reading. Luke 14, verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Well, it's considered bad form to RSVP for a dinner or a party and then at the last minute decide that you're not going to go. Even worse is... That happens, and you find out later on that what you couldn't make it to, what you could not attend, was uh, the greatest party you could have ever imagined. And everyone who was there got amazing gifts and uh, blessings beyond your wildest dreams. 
Perhaps even worse than that would be having to listen to someone tell you about that because you know that they had attended that party because the spot that you had, the spot you had left open was the spot they occupied. Jesus pulls on a lot of these strings by using this parable this morning. He shows us really two points, a point and then a counterpoint. The first thing he teaches us is the foolishness of missing or refusing the banquet of God's kingdom. And the second point is this, the grace of our God to fill the banquet hall. The foolishness of refusing the banquet, the grace of our God to fill the banquet hall. Jesus has just healed a man on the Sabbath, and this has prompted the grumbling and the complaining of the Pharisees that we see time and time again throughout the Gospel of Luke. Jesus then proceeded to tell a parable about lusting after places of honor and status in the world, and how that is opposite to what the kingdom of God is all about. There is a rat race in this world revolving around status, revolving around position of honor. It happens because of the merits of one's own achievement. Who can achieve more? Who can be recognized uh, for more? The theme of salvation, however, which is what Jesus is trying to bring our minds to see, the theme of salvation is that God will grant the high honor of salvation to the one who sees no merit in himself. For the one who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself is the one who will be exalted. And so Jesus tells that parable about lusting after high places of honor in order to illustrate what has just taken place at this dinner party. He's healed a man with dropsy. And he's healed a man with dropsy who had a low place at this dinner party. He probably was just there because the Pharisees brought him along to try and get Jesus in trouble. So he's at a low place of honor. But Jesus heals him. So what does he do? He exalts him. He gives him a high place of honor through his healing of him. But in doing so, he rebukes the Pharisees. And he gives the Pharisees a low place of honor, even though they exalted themselves. This um, healing of the man with dropsy was, of course, symbolic of what was going on in the souls of the Pharisees. Because uh, accompanying dropsy was insatiable thirst. People would drink and drink and drink liquids. Their thirst would never go away. It was insatiable. And that was symbolic of the sickness in the souls of the Pharisees whose thirst for status was never quenched. So then Jesus turns to the host of the dinner, and this is the beginning of what we read this morning. He gives an amazing piece of advice. He says, don't invite those who can reciprocate your kindness. Don't invite those who have Uh, who can pay you back, but rather bring in those who have nothing to offer you, nothing to advance your own name and your own status. Spend all of your resources on them. And this brought us last week to the wonderful good news of the gospel. As Jesus shows that in setting such a high standard, he's exalting that which he does for us, his perfect work in giving us his righteousness. And Jesus advances that today by showing us that at the feast of the kingdom of God, we are not hosts, but we are guests. We do not earn our invitation, but we have to be given an invitation through divine hospitality. We do not even arrange our own transportation to this banquet, but we are dragged into the banquet hall by the God who loves us. 
Before we dig further into this, you might wonder why the Gospel of Luke again and again and again uses eating and drinking or feasting, parties, these kinds of things to talk about the message of salvation. Well, two things to keep in mind. The first is that it it symbolizes for us or it illustrates the nature of the relationship between God and man the way it was supposed to be from the beginning. Supposed to be a a relationship of love and a, a covenant bond of fellowship and dwelling with one another. But that was cut off by sin. And so Jesus coming to earth... And feasting with human beings, feasting with those whom he has created, shows the way that he is going to repair that relationship. And secondly, uh, eating and drinking in the presence of the Lord is perhaps the best picture to show us the extravagance of God's grace. To show us that which he gives to us and that which he gives to us so freely. Uh, Symbolism of this is rich in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 25 Uh, says this, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. This is what our God does. He gives to us a feast and a banquet in his redemption. With all of that in mind, let's consider then uh, these words of Jesus as he interacts at this dinner party. Jesus tells us, The beginning, verses 12 through 14, who will attain to the resurrection? It's the one who will not invite his friends and family to dinner parties, but will give to those who cannot give anything in return. This prompts a response from someone in verse 15. He says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. What's going on with this man's response? Well, in a sense, he's agreeing with Jesus talking about the resurrection of the righteous. But there's something else going on here. Because not only is this man agreeing with what Jesus says about the resurrection, he himself is assuming that he is among those who will attain to the resurrection. It's as if he's saying, yes, blessed Jesus, blessed are all of us who will receive this resurrection blessing on that last day day. In the midst of Jesus condemning the earthbound mindset of the Pharisees and also the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, this man is still trusting in the merit that he brings to the table, that he can present to God. He's saying, God, God would never turn me away. He wouldn't dare. So blessed is everyone who will eat bread with God, especially me. See, we need to look into our own hearts, consider our own lives. We need to get on our knees and we need to pray that this kind of mentality would never enter the realm of our thinking. Self-righteousness. Thinking that we bring something to God that he would look upon as meritorious, that he would look upon as deserving salvation. We need to run away from that kind of thinking like Joseph ran away from Potiphar's wife. Self-righteousness, it can be so ingrained in our corrupted nature. We need to understand, we need to battle against it all of the time, each and every day, wanting to trust in what we do. It seeps into our minds, it affects the ways that we think about everything. We live in in a world that has undergone a a huge cultural and moral revolution and it, it seems to me that that kind of revolution can only flourish unless we all have this grand opinion of ourselves 
and our own righteousness. And the temptation is always going to be to sort of syncretize our thinking with those streams of thought. You keep hearing things over and over and over again that as long as people follow their heart, we can't call them sinners. This is what we need to understand, brothers and sisters. See, it begins here. It begins with how we view ourselves. And we need to understand and know that outside of Christ, we're all sinners. We're all condemned. We're all hopeless. If the Apostle Paul can call himself the foremost of sinners, then what am I? See, you will only try and justify the sins of others if you try and justify the sins of yourself. But if you view yourself and if you fight to continue to view yourself as utterly broken before God, hopeless apart from Christ, that same brokenness will be much more easily seen in the people around you. And this is not about rising above others and judging or condemning them. It's about remembering where everyone is headed without redemption. Hopeless without Christ. I was in a store this week uh, waiting to check out. So try to be nice when I'm out and about. And lady in front of me, I gave her the best smile I could and I said hi. She said hi back. She obviously wanted the conversation to go on a little bit more. So she said, how are you doing? And so I've been trying to remember to say this because it's interesting the kinds of conversations it can prompt when someone asks how I'm doing. I've been trying to remember to say, I'm doing better than I deserve. You can tell that that changed her mindset a bit in this conversation. She looked at me. She said, no, I think you you deserve it. I think you deserve it. If your life is good, I think you deserve it. I said, no, 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 no. I, I can assure you that what I have in this life, I do not deserve. She said, well, I mean, you seem so nice. You said hi to me and everything. C.S. Lewis once said that uh, it's probably wise to face the possibility that the whole human race is, in fact, so evil that minimum decency passes for heroic virtue and utter corruption for pardonable imperfection. Right? We're, we're, we're so unrighteous that the, the smallest, tiniest little things impress people as so virtuous. So I turned to this lady, and uh, she probably wasn't seeing this about to come on. I figured I'd just speak uh, truthfully, courageously in the moment. She said, ma'am, I said, ma'am, I don't really want to force a deep theological discussion on you while we're waiting to buy a donut here. But I can assure you that the best thing I have in this world is my Savior, and I know that I did not deserve the grace that my God shown to me, showed to me in giving me salvation. So if you tell people again and again and again that you don't deserve the, the good things that you have in life, they seem to eventually respond. So she just sort of look at, looked at me and said, yeah, you're right, you're right, you, 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 don't, you don't deserve it. We need to remember, friends, that what we have, we do not deserve. We need to fight self-righteousness. We need to fight thinking that God would look upon us as meriting salvation in and of ourselves. So Jesus responds to this man's self-righteousness. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus responds and he tells this parable about a banquet. A banquet that is thrown by a certain man. He could be a rich man or he could be of normal status. But this is the kind of banquet that can advance your name that can help you move up the rungs of the social ladder. So he invites all of the right people, and it seems like he's gotten positive RSVPs. He sends out his servant to the people who have been invited, says everything has been made ready. 
but everyone is caught up in other things. Three different examples. First person says, no, I've just bought a field. So what is it that's keeping him from this banquet? It's uh, an investment. It's money concerned about all of his assets. Someone else says, no, I've just bought a, a bunch of new oxen and I need to make sure that all of that is in order. Property, money, property. The third person says, no, I, I, I've just married and I'm going home to my wife. Pleasure, money, property, pleasure. J.C. Ryle points out that all of these things, they're not sinful in and of themselves. They are lawful. But accompanying these lawful things in these three cases is an excessive attention to them. And that's exactly what idolatry often is, isn't it? It's taking one of God's good gifts and it's elevating it to the place of God himself. See, a spouse is a wonderful thing. A spouse elevated to the place of God is an idol. A spouse who is an idol is a spouse who's doomed to woefully disappoint. A spouse who woefully disappoints can be replaced by a new and a better idol. And when we engage in this kind of idolatry, not only do we miss the goodness of the things below, but we miss the most important things that just pass us by. This is the picture of the life of Jesus Christ. You think of him going all throughout Galilee and throughout the land of Israel. And what is he doing? He's passing people by whose mindsets are bound to the earth. They're separated from God because of their pride. Their mindsets are bound to the earth because of their sensuality. So the standard of truth and the only way of salvation walks right past them without their giving him a second thought. You see, J.C. Ryle goes on to point out the danger of this kind of mindset. He says, thousands are continually doing what this parable described, uh, describes. They are invited to come to Christ. They will not come. It's not ignorance of religion that ruins most men's souls. It is a lack of will to use knowledge or love of this present world. It is excessive attention to things which in themselves are lawful. It is not avowed dislike to the gospel, which is so much to be feared. It is that procrastinating, excuse-making spirit which is always ready with a reason why Christ cannot be served today. Let the words of our Lord on this subject sink down into our hearts. Infidelity and immorality no doubt slay their thousands, but decent, plausible, smooth-spoken excuses slay their tens of thousands. No excuse can justify a man in refusing God's invitation and not coming to Christ. In response to this man's self-righteousness, Jesus tells of these three guests who decide at the last minute that they don't want to go. So it could be self-righteousness that makes them say, I don't need to go to this banquet. It could be self-righteousness that blinds people to say, I don't need to address the ultimate needs of my heart. Why? Because I know that I am a fairly decent person. I probably deserve all of the things that, all of the good things that God has given to me. I know that whatever happens on the last day, God will probably give grace. He will understand. You have time to address your ultimate needs. Self-righteousness blinds you to the ultimate truth. And in this we see the foolishness of refusing the banquet. This wonderful invitation. The kingdom of God passing this world by. All of these, of course, are poor excuses. And the master of the house sees all of these poor excuses as an excuse to go and invite the poor. 
When we think about the master of the house for this banquet, the one who's throwing this banquet, who is it? Who is the master of the house? For a couple of reasons, the master of the house is Jesus. It's our Savior. A couple of reasons. The first, there's a little clue in verse 22 when the servant calls him sir. That's actually the Greek word for Lord, the Greek word kurios. And we see all throughout the Gospel of Luke woven this case that Jesus is Lord. So that's the the title that Luke gives to him often throughout the gospel. But there's a second clue that's the more important one, and and that's what the master of the house does. See, he pictures the lavish love and grace of our Savior. He pictures the love and grace of the Savior who gives us a seat at the banquet of salvation. Grace is divine hospitality. It's a hospitality that goes beyond human comprehension, beyond our ability to grasp the depth of the love that it would take to grant salvation to sinners. That's what grace is. It's the rich giving of himself to those who cannot give anything in return. And that's what we see woven all throughout Scripture. Isaiah 55, for instance, speaks of the lavish love and grace of our God. He tells us that he is the God who satisfies, but also that he gives that satisfaction freely. This is what Isaiah 55 says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Let him who has no money come buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. God, who is infinite in riches, shares those riches with those who cannot advance his name, with those who cannot advance his status, cannot help him ascend any, any uh, social ladder or anything like that. He gives to those who cannot give in return. The rich coming to help the poor. Jesus speaks of this in Luke chapter 4. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, again quoting Isaiah, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then we see invoking of, the, of those categories again and again. The poor. Jesus has come to help the poor. Many people read the Gospel of Luke and they think, is Jesus setting up some kind of class warfare? Is it all about the poor and God is alienating the rich? That it's that simple? No. That is to miss the point of what Jesus is teaching us in Luke's Gospel. Luke is constantly referring back, or Jesus is constantly referring back in Luke to the conception of the poor that is given to us in the books of the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. See, those who are poor are those who are awaiting redemption from God. The picture there is those who who were of the nation of Israel who were exiled. All of the blessings of God were taken away from them and they were sent out of the land. And they were those who were awaiting the redemption from God. In other words, saying, there's nothing that I can do to get myself out of this mess. There's nothing that I can do to give myself all of those blessings that I once enjoyed at the hand of God. See, the poor in Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets and what Jesus is talking about, it's a mindset of inability. It's an absence of merit. It's that you bring nothing in your hands that God would look upon and be satisfied. I bring nothing to the table. So, 
In this parable, the master of the banquet tells his servant to go out and to bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Notice that these are the exact four categories of people that Jesus says to invite to the host of the party in verses 12 through 14. When you throw a party, go and invite the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Hosts should invite those who can give nothing in return. Who can live up to that standard? Who can perfectly and completely sacrificially give each and every moment of their life without fail? Can anyone live up to that standard? Amy Carmichael was a a hero of the faith, really like a a Protestant Mother Teresa. Her story uh, doesn't get mentioned as much, but really an amazing story of faithfulness working with orphans in India. Uh, a wonderful picture of, of selflessness. She probably stands head and shoulders above almost anyone who would try and prop up their own righteousness. And she writes this in one of her books. She says, when I consider the cross of Christ, how can anything I do be considered sacrifice? What's she doing? She's pointing us to the heart of the gospel and she's saying no amount of human sacrifice can ever compare to what Jesus has done for us. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who perfectly, completely, without fail, always did everything that he did for the betterment of those who could give nothing in return. Sacrificially. He did it for the poor the crippled, the blind, and the lame. You see, if we come to this passage and we insert ourselves as the master of the house, we're going to miserably fail. We're going to make a mess of this passage. We're going to make a mess of the gospel of Luke. We're going to make a mess of the gospel because none of us individually nor all of us collectively would ever be able to live out what Jesus says to do here in this chapter. None of us, not Amy Carmichael, not Hudson Taylor or any other of the heroes of the faith who went to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel, not Mother Teresa or any other hero of humanitarian aid. And that ought to be a reminder to us, brothers and sisters, that we cannot be like the man at the beginning of this passage who says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, even me. God will surely give me the feast of his kingdom. Jesus has told us what it takes to get to the resurrection. What does it take to get to the resurrection of the righteous? It takes absolute, total, righteous surrender. Completely, every second, without fail. If that humbles you and that fills your heart with unease, then you've heard me correctly. Because no one has achieved that. No one except Jesus himself. Here's the point, brothers and sisters. We consider these things. Here's the point. If anyone will stand at the resurrection, it will be because of faithfulness. It will be because of sacrifice. It will be because of obedience to God's commands. But it will not be your sacrifice or your faithfulness or your obedience. The gospel is that Christ gave himself perfectly, completely, freely for the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Do you know who that is? It's you and me. Provided that we know and we understand that we are sinners who are in need of God's salvation, who need to be saved from our sins. 
That's what Jesus did to give himself for salvation from sin. And after he gives himself on the cross, why was it that he defeated death? Why was it that he attained to the resurrection? The book of Romans chapter 1 speaks about God the Father looking upon Christ the Son and declaring him to be perfectly righteous and giving him, granting him the resurrection of the dead. See, Jesus achieves exactly what he says to do in verses 12 through 14. Give yourself perfectly, completely to the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame and you will achieve the resurrection. And that is what Jesus did. And that is why, brothers and sisters, by faith, we can take comfort and be assured that we will achieve, that we will attain to the resurrection, not because of what we have done, but because the work that Christ gives to us by faith is that perfect work, that perfectly righteous work that attains to the resurrection, that earns the resurrection of the dead. That's what Christ did for us. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Jesus is not telling us to earn salvation. He's telling us that we can't. He's telling us to look to him and to trust in him, to trust in the one who earned the resurrection. Humble yourself and you will be exalted. As we close, just two more ideas that give us even a greater sense of the glory of God in Christ and the inability of man. If you think of the picture that's painted in this parable, how do the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame, how do they get to this banquet? The poor can't make the trip. The blind can't find their way. The crippled, the lame, they can't walk. They need to be brought there. They need to be dragged there. There's a pastor that I appreciate who said that the the image there is that the disabled are being brought in on wheelbarrows amidst the chaos of the master of the house's generosity. They are dragged into the banquet hall because in and of themselves they do not have the ability to get to the banquet It's a picture of the sovereign grace of God. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? We need to be thankful each and every day for the sovereign grace of God that overcame our sinfulness, that overcame our wretchedness, that called us to himself and gave us new life. Wonderful picture of the sovereign grace of God. And then finally, finally we see the glory of God in his love and his salvation and his mercy for the lost. You think of a couple weeks ago when someone asks, uh, the passage we looked at, Someone asks Jesus, is the the number of those who are saved going to be many or is it going to be few? Jesus says, it's not of your concern to know uh, the number, but you need to know that the way leading to salvation is narrow. There's one way. It's a narrow door, and the narrow door is Jesus Christ. And yet we see that through that narrow door, God fills his house. God fills his banquet 
Paul. He's abundantly gracious. He's inexhaustibly, inexhaustibly loving, eternally long-suffering and compassionate. See, he desires that sinners, sinners like you and me. And that's the message of Scripture, right? He's, Jesus says, I did not come to heal the healthy, but the sick. Does that mean that there are some people that are healthy all throughout the world? No. The question is whether or not you understand that you are sick. Whether or not you understand that you need to be saved from your sin by Jesus Christ. God desires that sinners would be saved from our wretchedness. That we would be freed to live and to proclaim that the best thing that we have in this life, it's not the honor or the status that we attain. It's not the opportunity to make money or to fall in love, but it's that God loves us in Jesus Christ, that God loves us because of our Savior and that he frees us to serve him in newness of life for his glory and for his name's sake all of our days. See, it's undeniable that the Bible calls us to this life, uh, a life of radical sacrifice, of giving up and, and, and shunning the kinds of, uh, of mindsets and mentalities that we see in the world. Not in order to earn our salvation, we see here in this passage, we're saved through what Christ has done, but when we are freed up to live and to understand that Jesus Christ has already attained to the resurrection, Jesus Christ has already done the work for us that is credited to us by faith, what does that do? It frees us up. Not to return to being enslaved to our sin and our lustful flesh, but to serve God in the freedom and the newness of life that comes in the new life that he gives to us by the Spirit. So live for the Master, the one who desires that sinners would come and be saved. See, as the church, we can't achieve all that Christ has already done, but the church can carry forth that kind of a message and reflect the mercy and the grace of our God who would desire that sinners would be saved. So be the kind of person that others would look at and say, Christ must be real. For no one could ever love so freely if they were not themselves changed by the one who gave himself for his own. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you. We thank you for your grace to fill your banqueting hall. The grace to fill your house. We think of those words of the master of the house doing all of those things so that his house might be filled. We praise you. We pray that you would give us minds to revel in this truth. That you would give us hearts that rest in the joyful realization of what our Savior does for us, and that you give us tongues to declare all the things that our God does for us and gives us what we do not deserve. In Christ's name, amen. Let's sing.